I wanted to begin this message with a question for you that I think is sometimes hard for us to answer honestly. I want to ask, have you ever felt like God wanted you to do something and you really did not want to do it? I think on some level, Christians go through that every day as we fight with sin and temptation. But I mean that in a big way. A major life decision that you had to make. You sense that what you want and what God wants is not the same. For me, I I experienced this once in college. I'd been dating a girl for about a year, and I thought for sure we were going to get married because I was big on commitment. If I started something, I was going to finish it. And I had this awful sense and dread and anxiety that this was not what God wanted for me. I later found out that my mom had been praying that God would give me anxiety, and I thought, Mom, why didn't you pray for something nicer? Like a letter in the mail or, you know, something else. And I finally had to surrender and say, you know what, God, I don't understand this. It doesn't make sense to me. And I broke up with her. I thank God that I did. But that initial struggle was horrible. Because I felt like I knew what the right thing to do was. And at the same time, I felt like that's not what God had for me. I wanted to mention to you a reformer. Many of you probably heard the name. Uh, especially because this is 500 years since the Reformation, so it's a good chance to review some of these things. John Calvin is a guy, you've heard me talk about him in the the past little bit. He actually experienced that exactly to a T. It wasn't with a girl, it was with his life's vocation, it was with his calling to ministry. In 1536, Calvin was fleeing persecution in France. France is a Catholic country, he became an evangelical Christian, and France was killing evangelical Christians. He intended to go to Strasbourg and live the secluded life of a scholar. He didn't want to be a pastor. He didn't want to have to actually deal with people. He wanted to just write books. And he had already written the first edition of his Institutes, which is really, he wrote it because he said, people in France were hungry and thirsty for Jesus Christ. And very few people knew him, and knew about him. And so Calvin wrote this book as a desire to serve Christians. He wasn't fleeing ministry. He wanted to continue that ministry. And it was a little bit like, some of you may remember, when Rick Warren wrote The Purpose Driven Life. I feel like there were 10 copies in every church the next week. It was just immensely popular. A lot of people benefited from it. And that's what had happened to Calvin. He wrote the Institutes, and the church was hungry for truth. And they found biblical truth and they found nourishment in this book. And so his desire was to go to Strasbourg, kind of lock himself away and write books and continue to minister to the church in that way. On the way to Strasbourg, he stopped at an inn in Geneva. And that one layover he planned to stay for one night changed the course of his life for the rest of his life. In Geneva, there was a man named William Farrell who was working hard to establish evangelical churches in Geneva. 
And he desperately needed leaders to help the church. And so I don't know how he found him, but he knew that Calvin was in the city, this famous author of this book that had encouraged so many people. And so he hunted him down until he found the inn that he was staying at and confronted Calvin and said, I need you here. And Calvin said, I'm only staying for a night. I'm not a pastor. I'm called, I'm an academic. I'm a scholar. I'm called to go to Strasbourg. And Farrell used language that I will not use in church and put a curse on Calvin and said, God curse your retirement and your study if you do not stay here in Geneva and help me. I think sometimes we dismiss people like that. We say, you know what? That guy's got a demon. But Calvin said this, I felt as if God from heaven had laid his mighty hand upon me to stop me in my course. And I was so terror stricken that I did not continue my journey. Canceled his trip to Strasbourg, said I'll help in Geneva. They did not have an easy time. I've mentioned this in the past. He was initially only there for 18 months. A year and a half. And the town council ran both Calvin and Farrell out of town on a rail. Basically, do not come back. So, Calvin says, thank you God, and goes to Strasbourg like he'd originally planned and started studying and writing books like he'd always wanted to do. But then, Geneva called him back. And I think it's a little bit like getting dumped by a girlfriend. And the girlfriend says, I made a mistake. I was wrong. Calvin initially says, no, absolutely not. You made the right decision. I'm not right for you. You're not right for me. I'm staying in Strasbourg and writing books. But he continued to feel like that was not what God actually had for him. That was his personal desire. And he actually said this when he first turned down those, those requests to come back to Geneva. He said, rather would I submit to death a hundred times than to that cross on which one had to perish daily a thousand times over. He said ministry in Geneva was like being crucified a thousand times a day. That's how he felt. And then he said, in response to this request to go back, he said, nothing would be less agreeable to me. Absolutely not. I will not go. But then he said this. This is from the same letter that he wrote in reply. But when I remember that I am not my own, I offer up my heart presented as a sacrifice to the Lord. And he went back and he served there for the rest of his life. Calvin is an example of someone who sacrificed his own desires and ambitions to serve God. And I mentioned him this morning partly because it's hilarious that he was so honest that he said, ministry is like being crucified a thousand times a day. That's not what ministry is like for me, by the way, just to make that clear. But more importantly, Calvin is an example of a faithful servant. He's an example of what we're about to see in Philippians. Because he obeyed the call of God. And he put the needs of the church before his own. And that's exactly what Paul says Timothy did. 
So this morning, we're continuing through Philippians, and Paul is showing his incredible care for the church by sending Timothy to them so that he can hear how they're doing, and also because he knows that Timothy is capable of serving the church. So if you need the the page number for this passage, you have one of the blue Bibles that are all around you in the sanctuary today, you can go to page 981, and you'll find this passage. I'm in Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 19 through 24. Paul writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I've got three points here because I I think the beginning and ending of this is important, but I'm going to spend the majority of our time this morning looking at Timothy, at his life, at what characterized him as someone who was truly selfless. So first of all today, I want to mention Paul's selfless care for the church through Timothy. Paul's selfless care for the church through Timothy. And you can see this in verse 19. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. You see a couple of things there. In chapter 1, Paul had mentioned how this church, the Philippian church, had faithfully partnered with him in the spread of the gospel. They chose to support his ministry financially and relationally through a steady stream of contact back and forth. And there's no post office back then. If you stay in touch with someone in the ancient world, someone who's traveling like the Apostle Paul is going from city to city, it means that you have to pay for someone for their food, for their lodging, for their travel expenses to go find him without actually knowing where he is. So you'd go into a city and you'd look for him in a synagogue and they'd say, oh no, he was here a couple of weeks ago. He said he was going here. And then you would go there and find out maybe he was there, maybe not. But it was an expensive and a costly endeavor to maintain this kind of relationship. And they had maintained it for 10 years. And it wasn't just one-sided. The Philippian church does this in support of Paul. But Paul also sends people like Timothy back to them. And he continues a ministry of teaching and of mentorship and of encouragement. So now 10 years later, after Acts 16, when this church is first birthed. Paul is talking about sending them Timothy. Because he's anxious to hear how they're doing. And you can see his care for the church and his desire to hear good news from them. To hear that they're doing well. And here's the thing. Remember, Paul is in chains. He's in prison. And Timothy is one of the people who is taking care of him. So this is a huge sacrifice on Paul's part. But he's modeling the humility that he calls for the Philippians to have by putting their needs above his own. He hopes to send Timothy in particular because he has absolute confidence in Timothy's ability to serve the church. And he would be encouraged to hear that they're doing well. And I think that that confidence in Timothy really comes from Timothy's life and the 10 years or so that Paul had shared with him in ministry. And so let's look at verses 20 and 22 and we'll see Timothy's selfless service. Verse 20 says this, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. 
I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. Paul lists two things here about Timothy. The first is he is genuinely concerned for the church's welfare. That's in verse 20. And the second is that he faithfully served with Paul as a son alongside a father. You can see that in verse 22. And I want to talk about each of those in turn. First, Paul is saying Timothy is genuinely concerned for the welfare. And he's pointing out that Timothy is an example of someone who has the mind of Christ. So you remember the beginning of this chapter. Paul instructs each member of the church, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let this mind be in you that is also in Christ Jesus. And he describes the sacrificial life of Jesus, how he became a man, how he was crucified, and how the Father exalted him. He says, have that mind that you're willing to die for your fellow believers in the church. And this is the mind that every believer is to have, not just those in leadership. This is part of what it means to be made into the image of Christ. And all of us are being transformed into that. Paul is saying that Timothy actually does this. He considers what the church needs before he considers his own needs. And he has a sacrificial mentality. So as Paul mentions that he hopes to send Timothy to him, this is a model and example for us that what Paul has called us to at the beginning of chapter 2 and what he's demonstrated through the life of Christ is possible for real people. It's easy to read about Jesus Christ and say, well, that was Jesus Christ. He's the son of God. He's, he's the eternal son of God. I'm just a sinner. Timothy is also just a sinner. And Paul is saying, Timothy has done this. And so it's a small way of saying, you can do it too. If there's any doubt that this is what Paul means by using Timothy as an example, look again with me at verse 21 where he says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That's verse 20. Verse 21, they all seek their own interests. In other words, everyone else I know in the church where I'm at has failed to have the mind of Christ. They may be in ministry. They may have callings. They may be gifted. But they ultimately put themselves before the ministry. Timothy's not like that. Timothy has the mind of Christ. Verse 21 is a hard verse to read. Paul dismisses really almost the entire church that's around him. And I pray that that kind of statement would never be said of me, that I put my own interests ahead of the church. And that's not to say I am called to be a father before I am called to be a pastor. So that's not to say that I don't worry about my family. That is to say that I am very concerned with my calling. And not just my calling. This isn't just for pastors, but for every believer to have this mind. And I think it's worth taking a moment and asking, can you honestly say that you put the interest of Jesus Christ, who is concerned with the needs of the church, his bride, do you put those interests above your own? When you make your summer schedule and you plan vacation, do you think of what Christ would have you do in the church before you make your plans? Or do you make your plans and then see if you can serve the church around your schedule? When you make your budget, do you plan on all of your expenses and needs and then see what you can give after everything is met and you've done what you need to do? Or do you do what you believe the scriptures call you to do in giving and then adjust your budget according to that? Do you put your needs before the needs of the church? Or 
do you serve the church like Timothy does? When you hear about ministry opportunities like VBS or the Gospel Workshop, where we're going to be training people how to share their faith, do you immediately make a mental list of reasons why you can't possibly go and can't possibly serve? Or do you immediately think, I should do that. I don't care what else I'm committed to. I can change my plans for the sake of serving our kids here at VBS. I earnestly believe one of the greatest needs our church has is prayer. Spending time together in prayer. As you think about Wednesday night prayer meetings, I understand people are busy and there are many legitimate reasons why people can't come. But, If you can't come, are you finding a way to pray with other believers in a united way? Are you committed to praying together with the church for the church? There are so many needs that we have that we need to be praying about. There are so many things that we should be thanking God for and praising him for. There are so many things that we should confess to the Lord. If we don't pray together, are we really in a good relationship With Jesus Christ, who is the groom of the church? Can you imagine a couple that's engaged that never talks? We wouldn't say they had a healthy relationship. But how often do we as a church commit ourselves to talking to the Lord together in prayer? I want to urge you, when you think about a prayer meeting, do you immediately say, I can't possibly attend that? Or do you start thinking of ways that you can attend? Changes that you might need to make so that you can come. I want to urge you to consider prayer as a legitimate need of the church. If Paul were writing this letter to First Baptist Church of Holly, what would he say about you and me? Would he write and say, this person puts the interest of the church before his own? Or, Would you and I be in this other group where we all put our own interests ahead of the interests of the church? Paul puts most people in that group. And saints, I want to say to you, that is what the world does. They look to their own interests first. And the world is dying. Remember what we read in 1 John last fall. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. We are fools if we look to our own interests in this world. But Paul says that's where most Christians live, including people in ministry. This is a passage that I have to take seriously as well. Paul says he doesn't have anything, anyone else like Timothy. So my goal is to be more like Timothy. And to do that, I think it's worth looking at his life a little bit outside of the book of Philippians. Paul says that Timothy served alongside him like a son with a father. So to see what that looks like, I want to give you two small snapshots of his life. A real brief one from his childhood. And one from his call to ministry. And I want to mention, as I was preparing this message, I actually wanted to give you a little bit of a snapshot of his pastoral ministry as well. Because there's actually a lot of information about Timothy. And I couldn't do it. For the sake of time, 
that's going to have to be another message for another day. But if this has inspired you, I'd encourage you to read First and Second Timothy, and you can see what his life is like as a pastor, and you can see what his service was calling to, what what kind of service he was called to. The Philippian church knew Timothy personally because Timothy was there when Paul first planted the church. And in just a minute, we'll read about that in Acts chapter 16. But before we go there, I want to mention Timothy's young life. So in his childhood, we don't have a lot of information here, except that we know that his dad wasn't a believer. And we know this because 2 Timothy 1.5 describes how Timothy has the same faith his grandmother and mother had, and there's no mention of his father at all. In Acts 16, it says everyone knew Timothy's dad was Greek, which means that before their family heard the gospel, he had rejected his wife's faith. Acts 16 said his wife was a believing woman who was a Jew, but he rejected both her Jude, Jude, yeah, excuse me. He rejected both her faith as a believing Jew, and then when she became a Christian, she, he rejected her faith as a believer as well. And I want to say to you today, knowing that Timothy received his faith from his grandmother and from his mother, I want to urge you to recognize the value of teaching the faith, teaching the scriptures, being in prayer at home. Coming to church and bringing your kids to church and bringing your grandkids to church is good. But if you don't live it at home, you are teaching them that church is a small part of your life, something you do on Sundays, and most of your life has nothing to do with the scriptures and nothing to do with God. Timothy's home life wasn't like that. He received the scriptures and he received learning instruction, how to pray, how to serve by watching his grandmother and his mom. And I think it's worth saying he didn't have an ideal home life. Ideally, parents are united in faith. Sometimes people make excuses and say, well, you know what? I'm divorced or you know what? My spouse isn't a believer. And yes, that's hard, but that doesn't make this impossible. Timothy is an example that you can grow up in the faith in a less than perfect home and become a mature leader in the church. For Timothy, he saw sincere faith in his grandmother and in his mother, and he also believed. And so let me encourage you, read the scriptures together at home. Talk about what the Lord is teaching you. Sing to the Lord. Pray together. If your faith is not real at home, taking your kids and grandkids to church will not make a difference. But Timothy saw sincere faith, and he believed, and he was willing to serve when the time came. And I want to show you his call to ministry. You can see it in Acts 16. And if you want to turn there with me, Acts chapter 16, the second half of this chapter is where the Philippian church is founded and where it started. But the first half, half of this chapter describes Timothy joining Paul and Silas as they travel around and go and encourage their other churches. So let me read to you verses 1 here in Acts chapter 16. It says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, 
And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. I'll say a word about that in just a second. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Remember, when Paul is going to the churches that he helped start, and you can read about that in the end of, chapter, uh, of Acts chapter 15, he's going to see how they're doing. They've come to, church, they, they've come to faith in Jesus Christ, but he hasn't heard from them and doesn't know how they're doing, so he wants to travel around and check up on them. And as he's doing that, God changes his course of ministry But before he goes out on the second missionary journey that starts in verse 6, they meet this guy, Timothy. And before I go much further, I want to say something about what I just read in passing, that they chose to have Timothy circumcised before he started ministering. Why on earth did they do that? Circumcision was the sign God gave to Abraham that all Jews were to follow as a sign of the covenant that they belonged entirely to God. It was a permanent sign that would be a daily reminder that God was your God who had redeemed you. I think the closest cultural analogy that we might have to it is actually a lot of guys who go into the service get tattoos. So you get a, if you're a Marine, you get a tattoo that makes it real clear that you're a Marine. If you serve in the Army makes it real clear that you served in the army. Navy guys get Navy tattoos. This says, this is who I am. Circumcision, believe it or not, was an identity statement that said, I belong to God and God has redeemed me. The law of Moses said that babies needed to be circumcised on the eighth day after they were born, and anyone who was not circumcised would be cut off from Israel. So under the law... For those who were not born Jewish, the way to become Jewish was to be circumcised and to offer appropriate sacrifices for purification and to observe the law as a native-born Jew would. The Jews viewed circumcision as a point of pride. When you read stories like David and Goliath, David refers to Goliath as this uncircumcised Philistine. Makes it clear that he thought he was dirty, ceremonially unclean. So devout Jews in the places that Paul and Timothy are ministering to view circumcision as a sign of their relationship with God to a point of pride. Greeks, on the other hand, viewed circumcision as disgusting. They loved the human body and they considered circumcision to be a form of mutilation. So you can see the tension that comes from Jews who are proud that this is a sign that God has set them apart and Greeks who feel like this is disgusting and a shameful way to mutilate your body. Into that context comes Jesus. When Jesus comes, the way to be part of the family of God changed. Jesus didn't tell people to be circumcised, even when he was speaking to people who were not Jewish. He told people to believe in him. And John wrote his gospel so that people would know about Jesus Believe in him, and he says at the end, believing 
they might have life in his name. Nowhere in the New Testament is circumcision commanded as part of the good news of the kingdom of God. In fact, it's not commanded anywhere in the New Testament. The only time it's mentioned in connection with Christ is it says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day because Jesus fulfilled the entire law. But for us, the Bible says, believe and be baptized. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So you can imagine that in the early church where there are Jews who have this cultural sign, this way of identifying that they are the people of God and Greeks who have heard that they need to believe in Jesus Christ to be saved, but view circumcision as disgusting. This is a collision course. And in the very early church, in the first 14 chapters of Acts, before any of the New Testament was written, no one had ever said that circumcision wasn't required. It was a question that naturally came up. Do people who believe in Jesus Christ need to be circumcised to become part of the people of God? And you find that question addressed in Acts chapter 15. That's why in chapter 16, verse 4, he says, As they went their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. They had the Jerusalem council, Acts chapter 15. This is the question they consider. Do Greeks need to be circumcised after they believe in Jesus? And overwhelmingly, the answer is no. We are saved by grace through faith, not by an outward ritual. So after this question is answered in Acts 15, the entire New Testament speaks with a unified voice saying, circumcision or keeping any other law cannot save anyone. Circumcision isn't commanded anymore. This answer was not popular with Jews who had viewed circumcision as a point of pride. And for Jews who had not heard the message yet, they wouldn't even associate with uncircumcised people. And now remember, keep these two things in mind. You've got Jews here, you've got Greeks here. Greeks view circumcision as disgusting. So the fact that Timothy had a Greek dad is a dead giveaway that Timothy hadn't been circumcised because his dad never would have allowed it. And if he had allowed it, the local synagogue would have known about it. Some rabbi would have performed the operation and he would have been welcomed into fellowship with Jews. But he wasn't. And so it's public knowledge that Timothy, this young believer in Jesus Christ, has not been circumcised. Now, they've just said in Acts chapter 15, that's not a problem. He comes to God just like anyone else does through faith. There's no need for him to do this spiritually. So why on earth does Paul ask him to go ahead and be circumcised? Because he would be an awful missionary to Jewish people. They simply would not have listened to him because they regarded him as dirty, ceremonially, and spiritually unclean. You and I might feel the same way about a drunk who is trying to tell us about God. If you pass something, and this is not something that I've unfortunately actually seen, uh, especially among homeless in Chicago, drinking is a terrible issue. And sometimes they will tell you things, you know, Jesus loves you, and they'll call out to you, you know, and tell you about God. And, and you think, you know what? You should probably sober up before you try and tell people about God. You're just not going to have an effective ministry as an alcoholic if this is part of who you are. Jews actually felt the exact same way about circumcision. 
If you were uncircumcised and they knew he was uncircumcised because he hadn't been welcomed into fellowship in Jewish synagogues, they would not listen to you. So for the sake of Jews who don't know about Jesus, they still care a lot about circumcision. To them, it would let you know if someone was right with God or not. And Paul and Timothy know full well it doesn't matter. What matters is faith in Jesus working itself out in love. But in order to tell people that faith is all that matters, they don't want Timothy immediately dismissed like a drunk before he even opens his mouth. So for the sake of ministry, Timothy, as an adult, undergoes this operation with no anesthetic. You and I might say, clearly, God didn't call you to minister to Jews because you've been born to a Greek. Go be a missionary to Greek-speaking people. I think a lot of times people in church use this spiritual language to say, no, 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 that's not just my calling. And as soon as somebody says, oh, that's not my calling, oh, God hasn't called him to that. Okay, good, you're off the hook, that's fine. And there is a place sometimes to say no. But here's the thing. Sometimes God calls Greeks to be missionaries to Jews. Sometimes God might call you to do something that you don't want to do. And for Timothy, he put the prejudice of the Jews before his own comfort. And don't forget, his fellow Greeks would have thought he was a fool. He, in the mind of his fellow Greeks, mutilated his body. And the whole community would have known about it because now he's able to associate with Jews and he's welcomed into synagogues. That is dedication to ministry. Both Paul and Timothy were dedicated to the principle of becoming all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. So if I'm ministering to a bunch of people who love country music and I hate it, I'm going to learn to love country music. This is a hard message for us because we as Christians believe you have to be true to yourself. We raise our kids to believe that from birth. You don't compromise who you are. Timothy compromised being a Greek for the sake of being a missionary to Jews. In the church, we have to lay down our personal preferences and love other people first. You have no right to say, I can't minister to those people. You are called to love all people and to put them before yourself, especially in the church. Timothy took to heart what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. And this is what Calvin quoted when he agreed to go to Geneva. You are not your own, but you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And Timothy did. I've taken a long time to explain this one thing that Timothy did because I think it shows the level of his dedication to ministry. He was willing to do something that all of his fellow Greeks would have said was absolutely foolish. But it isn't the only thing that the Bible tells us about him. His name is actually mentioned 24 times in the New Testament and he traveled all over the world in the service of the church. He spent time in prison. He went not only to Philippi for Paul, but also to Corinth, Thessalonica, and Ephesus. And I'll remind you that this letter, Philip the Philippians, is written 10 years after Acts chapter 16, 
when Timothy and Paul first began serving together. So this wasn't a short-term missions trip for him. This was a dedicated life of ministry. Timothy's role was to preach, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. He's called to be strong and also tender and compassionate. In Ephesus, Paul instructed Timothy in several aspects of ministry. You can read about that in 1 and 2 Timothy. He wasn't just a teacher, he was an overseer, and he ran practical ministries like helping widows get food when they didn't have another source of food. He oversaw multiple churches and helped people know what it meant to have the mind of Christ. But he didn't just tell them what it meant. He showed them by a life that was dedicated to putting other people first. This kind of humility is almost impossible to find. And as we close today, I want to mention just briefly, you can see it in Paul as well. So look with me at the last two verses of our text today. Paul's personal selfless care for the church. It's in verse 23 and 24. Paul says, I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Paul's desire is to spend time with this church again. He hopes to send Timothy no matter what. And he wants to hear news of them and encourage them personally. But all of this is subject to the Lord. Notice he says, verse 19 I hope in the Lord. And verse 24, I trust in the Lord. Paul doesn't exactly know what the future holds. But he's committed to trusting that whatever God has for him and whatever God has for Timothy, that's actually what's best. He doesn't pit his desires against God's. He trusts that God's will is perfect. And he plans for what he believes is right and good for the church. And he trusts that if his plans don't work, that God's way is better. In all of this, he shows that he and Timothy have the mind of Christ. Let me ask you, how about you? Do you have this mind? As we close today, I want to make a couple of points of application. Two of them have to do with prayer. I want to urge you to pray that God would bless our church with people like this. If you look at your prayer list that's in the bulletin, I actually asked Debbie this week to add this item to our prayer list so that we could pray in a unified way as a church. That God would bless us with selfless people like Timothy in leadership and in service in every aspect of the church. And also that we would raise up people like Timothy In our church. I want to mention. Sometimes people are good at service. But they're not good at serving. By putting other people first. They can be so task oriented. That they forget. That we're actually here for people. Pray that God would bless us. With humble servant hearts. So that our church. Would have people like this in it. The second thing I wanted to pray for is pray that God would send people out from our church like this. That we would be a source of encouragement for other believers. And towards this end, I want to urge you to faithfully teach your kids and grandkids so that they grow up like Timothy. So that they know that church is not just something that you come to on Sundays and Wednesdays. It's part of your Monday through Sunday 
daily existence. They know that you pray. They know that you read the word. I want to urge you to teach your kids and your grandkids how to serve so that they know that you put other people before yourself. And that gets me to my last point of application. I want to urge you and I myself want to be like Timothy. I want to ask you to consider your own life. Do you put the well-being of your fellow Christians and the church ahead of yourself? I want to urge you to remember what Paul has said. That if we're working our salvation out with fear and trembling, it means we are working. It means that you will look for selfishness in your life. You don't just blame all of the conflict and problem on other people. You recognize you probably are part of the problem too. And you ask with the help of God to root selfishness out of your heart. You ask him to change you. So let me ask you just a couple areas where you might be selfish. Are you selfish with your time? Do you feel entitled to me time? It's a phrase that we love. You got to have me time. Maybe. But if your me time comes at the expense of serving the people around you, you're just being a jerk. Are you selfish when it comes to the ministry of the church? Do you neglect serving because you have other priorities that you feel like come first? When you do serve, are you putting the needs of other people before yourself? As we close, I'd like to take a moment and I'd like for each of us to ask the Lord to speak into our hearts that he would let us know where we stand. If we are like this, Paul says, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. My prayer is that would not be true of anyone here, that it would not be true of me. So let's close our eyes and talk to the Lord, and I'll close us all in prayer in just a moment. Ask the Lord where you might be being selfish. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you most of all for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We thank you for people like Timothy, people like Calvin, who let us know that we can follow the example of Christ, Lord. I pray that you would be at work in us. Forgive us for our selfishness. Teach us to serve with humility. And I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.